During an episode where I introduced the notion of a dual, D-U-A-L, I feel as though I should add one qualification. For example, I don't think that happiness and misery or hope and despair count as duels in the sense in which I have used the word. Full stop. Instead, what I'm imagining is that hope and despair, happiness and misery, are typical pairs of concepts that all belong on what we call the Newtonian side of the dual. In other words, they're relatively easy concepts to get hold of and use. They make us feel comfortable because they seem to connect very directly with our experiences. But like the Newtonian mechanics that we discussed there, they're unfortunately wrong. Full stop. New paragraph. Someone's likely to object that in series nine, where I introduced a lot of ideas to do with truth, I didn't say very much that would help to understand what I mean by wrong as I've used it just now. And I think that's fair comment, so let's see if we can put it right. Full stop. When I say that something is wrong, I mean it in a way that's entirely, I think, consistent with the way I've used the word true. It's not the best we can do. It doesn't optimise how we get on. It doesn't help as much as it could, and it may actually hinder. The effect, therefore, is something that doesn't enhance life, doesn't help us get on with life, but instead instead hinders us. Now, somebody may further object, but are you suggesting that the concepts of hope and despair or happiness and misery don't help us? And my response would be, to say, well, they may not help us, even though we think they do, in rather the way Newtonian mechanics and physics appears to help us, but unfortunately leads to some problems that can't be resolved in its own terms. And if you were to say to me, well, how does that arise in those concepts happiness and unhappiness or misery, hope and despair, I think my answer would be that while we think in those terms, we will be encouraged by the very vocabulary, not to mention the concepts that we're using, to adopt a a style of life 
that looks elsewhere, outside, for its self-justification. Hope, by definition, is looking forward or to some alternative rather than dealing with the way things are. And my imaginary objector, interlocutor, may well say at that point, well, that's all very well for somebody who's living a reasonably comfortable life in rural Norfolk with not really a care in the world, but it doesn't apply to the majority of people in the world, all of whom need some kind of hope because their current circumstances are so intolerable or stressful or dangerous or insecure or whatever it might be. So think of someone who's living in the Ukraine and fighting a war that they should never have had to fight. Or think of someone who's lost their job and can't meet their bills or someone who's got small children and can't afford to put shoes on their feet. All of these things would seem to suggest that we need hope. Well, I wouldn't deny that that's the case. But hope must always enable and it must also involve some kind of agency. Otherwise, it is a passive and even impotent hope that offers no hope other than hope itself. And that, I think, is not a helpful way of thinking about it. Let's have a jingle and then come back. Let's look at an example, which we deliberately choose to be somewhat naive, but for purposes of illustration. Suppose we have our two pairs that we've already talked about, happiness and misery, hope and despair. But we might also take a rather more complicated network of ideas, such as those that work around the notion you should work hard at school because then you'll get good results and your good results will mean that you get a good university and that will mean that you get a good job and then you'll get a good salary and then you can spend money and you can do etc. All of which is built around, predicated upon the notion that the entire value system that it supports is a value system that we should support because it brings about human thriving and so on. So all of these ideas fit together, just as they do inside Newtonian mechanics and physics, to produce a worldview that seems to work and seems to be something we can relate to relatively effortlessly. And so when someone comes along and points out that, in fact, this, to use the prophetic words again, involves eating what doesn't satisfy and drinking what doesn't quench thirst, so we should really be more ambitious for ourselves and look for something else, the reaction that we get is usually akin to that 
when people first encounter the ideas of quantum theory and general relativity, if indeed they ever do, they will turn around and say, yeah, but this is incomprehensible, or this is absurd, or I don't believe the universe really works like that, because the ideas are counterintuitive, at least in an unreconstructed intuition. And so we find ourselves in the strange situation where we work with something that is clearly wrong, but which we're comfortable with, even though all the evidence around us suggests that it's unsustainable, which is becoming increasingly evident, primarily because either the alternatives have not been worked out sufficiently carefully, or because our first experience of them or encounter with them is that they're incomprehensible or so far outside our normal intuitions that we reject them as soon as we meet them. This whole podcast series, which is now over 400 episodes long, is in a sense a way of saying that we need to embrace some dual strategy, that we are unmaking common sense, unmaking the sense that we feel comfortable with, in the hope that the new sense that we might make will be in relation to it superior, even if more difficult, even if less obviously intuitive. And we pursue that because we think that the overall benefits are worth the effort in a similar sort of way to the way in which we think that the benefits of embracing a quantum mechanical or Einsteinian general relativistic view of the universe are worthwhile. Because they're more comprehensive, they prove more to us, they show us more, they explain more, and they have longer life expectancies because we know that Newtonian physics fails fairly soon, we find that it stops working. Now, part of the problem that we face is that all our values and the things that we think matter depend upon and are mutually supportive of a particular view of happiness, a particular view of misery, a particular view of hope and despair, and a particular view, therefore, of what constitutes a successful, fulfilled, complete life. But if all the, cat- if all the categories surrounding that are themselves unreliable, suboptimal, or even, to put it bluntly, wrong as seems to be the case when you look around and see that the world is full of so many people for whom its normal measures of success just don't seem to work. I'm sorry about the whining off. It's annoying me, I'm sure, as much as it's annoying you. So, in order to move into the dual space, we don't just need to abandon notions of happiness and unhappiness, of what it is to hope and what it is to despair, 
we need to rebuild the entire conceptual framework that goes with it. And that's a big task. So how do we even start? How do we start to look at life from another perspective in which the values that even if we were to use concepts like happiness and hope and success and human thriving would lead to completely different experiences from those that we usually associate with those words. The problem, in other words, is that the language masks a duality of value, a duality of what matters, a duality of a conception of human thriving, which is, which is simply reinforced by using words like happy and sad and hopeful and despairing, because what we mean by those words is that we are happy with something that is not satisfying. We hope for things that will not fulfill. So it isn't so much that we need to move out of the space defining happiness, misery, hope and despair, but that those words have nothing to refer to once we change the value system that underlies them. If the value system is wrong, if how we understand human thriving is mistaken, then what we will regard as happiness, what we will regard as something that is grounds for hope, what we will regard as success, and what we will regard as fulfillment, and therefore human thriving, will all of them be mistaken. But they will be self-reinforcing mistakes that we have no option but to buy into while we are still living in what we are metaphorically calling the Newtonian universe. The universe of values, of our sense of what matters and of everything else, that defines an attitude to life that ultimately doesn't produce satisfaction, fulfilment or completeness. Now there is very obviously an objection here and it requires I think a separate episode to deal with it properly but let's register it because it may well be occurring to anyone listening to this which is can I be mistaken about the fact that I'm happy? In, in other words, even if the underlying values are wrong, is it possible to say that even though they are wrong, if I'm happy with, with them, I'm not really happy? If I'm saying that I am fulfilled, but I'm not really fulfilled, aren't we in danger here of subverting the whole argument that has been under the entire series of 403 episodes by suggesting that there are some external, absolute, incontrovertible standards that define human thriving, what it is to be successful, 
what it is to be fulfilled, what it is to have a full, complete life. And that if we don't measure up to those standards, the standards are fraudulent and any kind of happiness that is based around those fraudulent standards is itself fraudulent. But somebody is likely to say quite strongly and insistently that it just isn't possible to be mistaken about being happy. If I think I'm happy, if I feel happy, isn't happiness a kind of self-justifying, self-reinforcing, self-authenticating experience which just can't be wrong? Can I be mistaken about my own happiness? Well, I think, as I say, that we need another episode to deal with that. But the sort of answer that we would need to give is that we can only be as happy as we know how to be. And if we are to use a metaphor that I've used before, merely standing on the top of the foothills of what might properly be conceived as a legitimate kind of happiness, when there is a mountain before us that we simply can't see, then someone else might look at us and say, well, you think you're happy, but you're not. You can't be, because look, if you were up there you'd be so much happier. And this is a really intractable problem that we talked about once before in terms of how do I know whether to leave the position that I'm in in order to be able to access a position which will be better than the one I'm in. And someone could at the same time perfectly legitimately say, But are there degrees of total happiness? If I'm completely happy standing on the summit of a foothill, could I conceivably be happier if I stood on the top of a mountain thousands of feet higher? Does that notion of comparative happiness make any sense? And as we mentioned once before, some have tried to deal with this problem by talking in terms of rates of change of our situation, that we are at our happiest not when we are at a pinnacle, but when we are climbing, when we feel that we are moving towards something better, when we are on an up slope, which occasions hope for the future. But you're saying, hold on a minute, you spent the first half of this episode saying that happiness and hope and despair and misery weren't proper measures and you've done nothing but talk about them ever since. But the point that I'm making is that they are completely empty measures unless we similarly have a set of values of things that matter to us, a sense of human thriving a proper sense of human thriving that allows us, even if we're happy, to know that we're happy. So that in a Newtonian world, 
there are still things that we think are truths, but they're different things from the things we think true in a quantum mechanical or Einsteinian world. And that's just the point, that somehow we have to resolve the paradox that something which seems all-encompassing and completely satisfying from our subjective point of view might still be mistaken. How is that possible? Watch this space. Thank you for listening.